Well, I don't know if you remember, but when I was preaching during Brandon's sabbatical, I had realized I hadn't preached at the church for a whole year. And uh, so I thought maybe being sick last week would be good enough to get me out of preaching for another year again, but I guess my stomach bug wasn't convincing enough, so here I am this morning. I love preaching, by the way. That's not a slight on that. Um, before we get going this morning, let's, let's take some time to pray and to, to get our hearts in a, in a place to hear from God's Word. Father, I thank you uh, for who you are. I thank you that you have made yourself known to us, Lord, that we are not left guessing as to who created everything, who knit us together, that you have made it abundantly clear that you are a God who is all-powerful and mighty and faithful and true. God, I pray this morning that as we, as we look to your word and as you reveal who you are to us and who you reveal us to be, that your word and your spirit can be working in us, that you can be working out your will, your desire in our lives, that we can come this morning to hear from you. Father, we come in all different places in life, whether we're dealing with crazy kids or we're enjoying a quiet retired life or maybe life is not so quiet in retirement anymore and things are rough and difficult and unplanned. God, I pray that wherever we're coming from this morning that we are quieting our hearts to, to listen to you, to hear from you, and to be encouraged, to be challenged, to remember who you are. God, I pray that in doing so, we, our love for you grows more, our desire for you grows more, and that we want to glorify you with all of our lives. So I pray you just be guiding our time this morning. I pray in your name. Amen. All right. Well, two weeks ago, Brandon brought us back into our Harmony of the Gospel series, written so that you may believe. And there was a slight detour last week, but we're back on track now, making our way through the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to learn about the life and the teachings of Jesus. And the purpose of this series is that as we go through Jesus' life and read and learn from what these four gospel authors have written, that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name, as John says at the end of his account in chapter 20, verse 31. As we go through the series, our prayer is that our faith in Jesus is continually strengthened, refreshed, and bolstered as we see his life lived out. We pray it continues to grow all of us in our love and our knowledge of him. So Brandon got us up and running again in our series, and he gave us an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, which is this next chunk of the Gospels that we're tackling. Up until this point, we have already learned a substantial amount about Jesus. We learned he is no normal human being, but he is God in the flesh, God incarnate. He is 
fully God and fully man. And when he was born, he had fulfilled many prophecies from the Old Testament in which God promised his people that one day he would send his Messiah, his anointed king, to come and to save his people. As Jesus grew up and became an adult and began his ministry, we saw that he was not the anointed king everyone was expecting. Rather than coming to free the Jewish people from Roman oppression and establish this earthly kingdom for the Jews with military power and might, Jesus came humbly and mercifully to establish a greater kingdom, the kingdom of God. In Matthew 4, 17, we see the idea of this kingdom start popping up, and it will be a, a continuous theme in all four of the gospel accounts. Jesus is just beginning his ministry as a teacher and a preacher, and he says, Repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Quick side note, Matthew's gospel is unique in referring to the kingdom of God as the kingdom of heaven, and there's some reasons for that, but we're not going to get into that now. But just so you know that when Matthew says kingdom of heaven, he's not referring to some other kingdom. It's just another name for God's kingdom. And we'll see this pop up a few times in our passage today uh, for the Sermon on the Mount. So this kingdom refers to God's reign and his sovereignty and that his realm or dominion has come near because the king, Jesus, has come near. This was Jesus' purpose, not to establish some earthly kingdom with human strength, but to usher in God's kingdom. And we have seen the nearness of his kingdom since he began his ministry through his power and authority and healings teaching, forgiving sin, and we will continue to see it in the other miracles and events as the gospel accounts continue on. As Jesus goes on in his ministry, the unexpectedness of his kingdom continues as he calls a group of fishermen to be his disciples, which was the last place for a rabbi to pick students to follow him. Those were the rejects. Those were the done and gone with. Yet again, we see that Jesus and his kingdom are different than what we would guess or anticipate. As Brandon preached a couple weeks ago, Jesus didn't line up with any of the major sects of Judaism at the time. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, all missed the mark of what God was planning to do with his anointed king. And even though people did not expect this was how God would usher in his kingdom, we have seen that people are now flocking to Jesus because they've heard, they've seen, and they've even experienced his authoritative power over all the problems of this world and even their own sin. And what's unique about Matthew's gospel is that he bounces back and forth between times of Jesus' actions and miracles and so on, and then he goes to these concentrated times of Jesus' teaching. And so today we enter into chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel, just after Jesus has gone all over Galilee, he's been teaching and preaching, he's been healing every disease and sickness, and then healing even more as word has spread about him. And now, Matthew takes a pause in all the action to slow down and record a crucial portion of Jesus' teaching to his first followers and the crowds that have come to see him. Today, we are entering into a chunk of scripture that has stood out since Matthew first wrote it down. The Sermon on the Mount is an incredibly famous 
section in Matthew's gospel. It has been prolifically taught on and written about throughout all of church history. It is well known outside of the church, and it has been treasured words for Christians since Matthew first recorded this condensed sermon of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount occurs in chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew's gospel, and it occurs in chapter 6 of Luke's gospel. Mark and John don't have it in their accounts. Jesus' actual sermon to his disciples and the crowds on the mountainside, which is where this portion of Scripture gets its name from, was likely much longer than these three chapters that take about 10 minutes to read. But Matthew has taken Jesus' words and packed them into three amazing and overflowing chapters in his gospel account to teach us about ourselves, to teach us about God and his kingdom, to teach us about sin and the law and righteousness, to teach us about love and hate, to teach us about worry and worship and prayer and greed, wisdom, foolishness, and so on. In this sermon on the mountainside, as his first followers gather around him and as the crowds listen in, Jesus teaches them, and he's teaching us today, what true faith, righteousness, and a truly blessed life looks like. And it cuts right to the heart of who we are. So the next few weeks should be a a fruitful and productive time as we work our way through chapters 5 through 7 in Matthew. And we'll look at Luke's account every once in a while as it's even a more condensed version of Matthew's already condensed version of Jesus' sermon. So today we begin with the first section of the Sermon on the Mount, which is famously referred to as the Beatitudes. And it is how Jesus chooses to begin this famous time of teaching on the mountainside. And surprise, surprise, it will once again not be what anyone expected to come, God's anointed king. Even Matthew is building up the hype and the excitement to Jesus first speaking these profound words of the sermon. It literally says in Matthew 5, verse 2, Then opening his mouth, he began to teach them. It's as if the scene goes into slow motion, and the whole world has stopped to pause and watch and listen to what will come out of the mouth of God in the flesh, the Messiah who has finally come. So let's read our passage of Scripture for today. In Matthew chapter 5, we'll start it. Verse 1, and we'll read through verse 12. It says, When he saw the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. They began to teach him, and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. 
You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray real quick and we'll continue on. Father, I just pray that as we look at your word here, as we look at these Beatitudes, that you are just speaking to us. We know your word is living and active, and I pray that it is accomplishing what you desire within us this morning, Lord. I pray that your spirit is moving within each of us to make us more and more like you. Father, we we love you and we thank you for your word, and we just pray in your name. Amen. So as Jesus makes his way up on the mountain and sits down to teach, it's recalling memories of Moses being up on a mountainside and instructing the Israelites. When a rabbi or a leader sat down to teach, it meant serious business. This was time to listen in. And when Moses instructed the Israelites from Mount Sinai, they were receiving the law from God as to how they should live and worship him. And now, one greater than Moses is here. God's anointed king, God in the flesh, has come to teach his first followers and the crowd standing by about his kingdom and the heart behind all of his law. And I gave all that context earlier about how Jesus was not meeting the expectations of his people because in today's passage, the words that Jesus first speaks from his mouth as he teaches his disciples and the crowds on the mountainside are completely unexpected. His words almost don't make rational sense. Jesus chooses to begin this world-famous teaching time by answering the question we all ask as humans. What is happiness? How can I be truly happy? And not just the temporary and subjective feeling of happiness, like you get an ice cream cone and you're so happy to eat this delicious piece of ice cream and you take that first bite and oh, so good. And you're so excited for that second bite, you're almost a little over-aggressive and you go for the bite and it falls off the cone and plops onto the ground, and now you're definitely not happy. We're not talking about our constantly fleeting feelings of happiness, but this desire we all have within us for the blessed life, the life we won't regret or hate, but be genuinely satisfied and joyous over. The life that won't end up empty, but full and flourishing. Jesus starts by saying, blessed, or the blessed people are dot, dot, dot. These eight statements, plus the one that's repeated and further clarified at the end, are famously known as the Beatitudes. And if you're like me, you ask, what is a Beatitude? Like Brandon said a couple weeks ago, are these B-attitudes? Like attitudes that we should be? Although that's clever and a fun play on words, you know, like Brandon's justified, just as if I'd never sinned. It doesn't work with the Beatitudes, unfortunately. It's not a proper understanding of what Jesus is teaching here. The word Beatitude comes from the Latin word Beatus that refers to a state of happiness or bliss. So a Beatitude is then a pronouncement of one who is blessed. And it is normally followed by a promise or a truth of why they are blessed. And you may have heard of another name for Beatitudes is Macarisms, 
which actually comes from the Greek word Matthew uses over and over here to begin each of these statements of blessed are. So these beatitudes or these macarisms are not focused or based on the inner and ever-changing feelings of a person. They're based on, they're supported by the never-changing promises of God. Because the opposite of, of blessed is not unhappy, but cursed. And the opposite of a beatitude or a macarism is a woe. And not like a, a woe, but like a W-O-E woe, just to be clear. Luke's account actually demonstrates this very clearly. It's really cool. He doesn't have all eight of the beatitudes that Matthew does, but instead he has four of them. And then he has four woes that directly tie to each beatitude. So let's turn to Luke chapter six real quick. And we're gonna see Luke's uh, recording of the Beatitudes. Luke chapter six, Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter six, starting at verse 20. So Luke writes, then looking up at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor, because the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are now hungry, because you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, because you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. But woe, to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. So you probably noticed the first three verses, starting with verse 20, contain the four beatitudes of Luke's account. But then he does something different than Matthew. He records four contrasting woes that line up with the same order of his beatitudes just before. And in doing this, Luke gives a, a bigger and clearer picture of each beatitude when he contrasts it with a corresponding woe. He even uses the same language in different ways to make the connection super clear. Blessed are the poor versus woe to the rich. Blessed are the hungry for they will be filled versus woe to the full for they will be hungry. Blessed are those who weep because they will laugh versus woe to those who are laughing now because they will weep and mourn. Blessed are you when people hate you for they treated the prophets in this way versus woe to you when people speak well of you for they treated the false prophet. Each beatitude and corresponding woe work together to, to further define what Luke recorded Jesus saying. And this all shows that Luke is not meaning for these statements to be focused on or to be based on being temporarily happy versus unhappy. Jesus is not concerned with our flippant emotions as the basis for his beatitudes. He's concerned with his never-changing promises that are focused on a much grander scale of what one's life looks like now and what it will look like in the future, either good or bad, either blessing or woe. And this way of communicating was common back then, and it's still common today in many ways. 
So the Beatitudes are not a unique thing to the Sermon on the Mount. They just get the cool title of Beatitudes because they're all tucked together and it looks really nice. They occur throughout the Bible in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. One example from the New Testament is James 1, verse 12. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. You see the two parts of the beatitude here. That the one who is blessed is the one who endures trials, and then the promise of why they are blessed, God's promise of the crown of life or eternal life for those who love him. A great and well-known example from the Old Testament is Psalm 1, like the whole thing. So turn with me to Psalm 1 real quick, and we'll look at it. It's only six verses. It won't take long. Psalm 1 is, is cool. It's kind of like what Luke did with his Beatitudes and woes, um, and that you're getting the contrast of the blessed one versus the, the cursed one. So let's, let's read this real quick. My translation says, how happy, or it's the same thing. as how blessed is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the way of, with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. And you can see that the promise coming with it. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. And then you get the contrasting one of the wicked in verse 4. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, there's the, here's the promise of the woe. The wicked will not stand up in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. And then the author of Psalm 1 kind of lumps them both together at the end, just as a reminder. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, the blessing, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin, the woe. So we see the one who is blessed or cursed, and then you see the promise of God as to why they are blessed or cursed. So we are all hopefully kind of on the same page now as to what a beatitude is. It's this pronouncement of one who's blessed, and is normally followed by a promise or a truth of why they're blessed. And this is where Jesus' Beatitudes come across as almost ludicrous for the people he speaks of and the blessings he's pronouncing. But as we will see, Jesus' words are faithful and true. So turn back to Matthew chapter 5 with me now. You don't have to flip around anymore. We'll just stay put in Matthew 5. And let's read through each of these Beatitudes and see what Jesus was teaching his disciples and the curious crowds listening in and what he's teaching us today still through these beautiful words. How does Jesus first answer the question of what is true happiness? Let's read verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus is really starting off strong here. Let's read who the rest of these blessed people are. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who 
are hungry and thirsting for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Think of the disciples, and even more, think of the crowds hearing Jesus for the first time. So let's get this straight, Jesus. You're telling us that the blessed people are the poor in spirit, the mourners, the humble, the hungry and thirsty for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. For us who have a Christian worldview and a mindset, we, we grasp this pretty naturally, but for anyone lacking this understanding, all of these people that Jesus says are blessed are people being defined by mostly negative or weak things. In the Roman world, this kind of people would be the shoved aside and the pitied. They wouldn't amount to anything in a world based on being better than everyone else. And the same is true for us today. If our world were to come up with a list of who the blessed people are, it would be more like, blessed are the rich, blessed are the strong, blessed are the good-looking, blessed are the, the healthy and the in shape, blessed are the famous, Blessed are the, the bullheaded and strong-willed, the one who gets things done. Blessed are the super confident. So on. But Jesus takes this almost depressing list of people in Matthew 5 and then does something extraordinary and almost paradoxical or contradictory with it. His beatitudes state that these blessed ones, the sad and depressing group of people will receive the promise that is greater than any promise or blessing this world could offer. Jesus says these kinds of people are promised the kingdom of God. This kind of people will be comforted. They will be filled with righteousness. They will inherit the earth. They will receive mercy. They will see God. They will be called sons of God. The unexpected Messiah has proclaimed unexpected blessings and promises to an unexpected group of followers. So what I want to look at now with Jesus' Beatitudes is the characteristics of this kind of people and the kind of blessings that they receive. What we see here with Jesus' eight Beatitudes and verses 11 and 12 are just a continuation of the last beatitude, is that Jesus is defining some things for his followers. Jesus is beginning this time on the mountainside by teaching his disciples, his, his apprentices or his students, about who is a part of God's kingdom and about what the kingdom has in store for them. I say this because Matthew does something pretty cool here with his eight beatitudes. The first and the last beatitude have the same promise or blessing, and it is the exact same words for both. 
These two blessings act as bookends, and they lock in all that Jesus says here. So we treat these eight different beatitudes as one cohesive unit. And within this unit, Jesus is characterizing who the people of his kingdom are. All of these descriptions that begin each beatitude stem from a certain kind of person. And this person is someone who truly follows Christ. Matthew has already laid out the idea of someone who follows Jesus previously in his gospel. They have responded to Jesus' call to repent for the kingdom is near, Matthew 4, 17. And they've also responded to his call to follow him, Matthew 4, 19. So Jesus is actually teaching the disciples about themselves. He's teaching them about who they are when they believed in him and who they ought to continue to be as they follow him for the rest of their lives. This will always be a reminder to them of who they truly are in and because of Christ and who they should strive to be as they faithfully follow and obey his way and his teaching. Because this is the truly blessed and satisfyingly happy life, even though it won't look like that to the world around them. And this teaching for the disciples is is true for us as well. The Beatitudes are a mirror for us to remember who we are in Christ and who we want to be because of Christ. For these characteristics truly are a reflection of Jesus himself in many ways. And along with the character of these kingdom people, we see there are certain blessings they receive. All of the second parts of these Beatitudes teach Jesus' disciples and us about his kingdom and what is in store. Notice that these blessings are focused in two ways. On a here and now immediate blessing, and then on a future and full blessing that they can look forward to with full assurance and confidence. Jesus states the kingdom of heaven is theirs, like right now. And he also states many other blessings will be theirs. The point, this points to the idea of his kingdom being here right now. So there is that immediate blessing but it's only here in part. But one day, God's kingdom will come fully when Jesus returns again and these future blessings will will be fulfilled and, and fully realized. And there is no uncertainty or hesitancy in Jesus' future promises here. They are stated as a matter of fact with unwavering certainty. This is the unshakable hope that God has for his people, for you and for me. We will be comforted. We will be filled with righteousness. We will be shown mercy. We will see God. We will be children of God, and his kingdom is ours now. It doesn't get any better than this. This is the truly happy and full life. And if you are not someone who has repented and followed Jesus with all of your life, I pray that today you don't leave here without fully weighing the words of Jesus. For there is no greater hope and blessing than what God has done for you and for me. To have eternal life with him. 
to have our sin completely and totally forgiven because of what Jesus has done in dying on our behalf and rising to new life, conquering sin and death and inviting us to be children of God in restored relationship with him for now and into eternity. This is the blessed life. The kingdom of God has some mind-blowing things in store for God's people. Jesus is promising some ludicrously amazing things here. So let's briefly walk through these eight Beatitudes and see what we learn about ourselves and what future blessing is in store. I'm going to lump the first four Beatitudes together as they all align more with how the blessed people relate to God. So the first four Beatitudes state that the blessed people are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the humble, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What a way to kick off the Beatitudes. And speaking of being poor in spirit, Jesus uses language for the lowest of lows and then partners it with the highest of highs. The word for poor here doesn't mean you just have like a few coins on you and in your name. You think of like the poor widow later on in the Gospels. No, this word for poor means your entire existence is dependent upon someone else providing for you. There is absolutely nothing to your name and your only hope is to beg. Blessed are the beggarly poor spirit. And this idea of mourning applies both personally and to the world around us. Personally in the sense that coinciding with our poverty of spirit, we mourn over our condition as as sinful and lost apart from God. We're hopeless. And also in the sense of mourning over the world around us and that we are at times surrounded by mournful and hopeless circumstances. What's actually really cool to see here is Jesus is using these first two Beatitudes to reference a prophecy in Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2 say, The Spirit of the Lord God is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn. Sound familiar? Poor, brokenhearted, mourning. And the really cool part is that Luke records Jesus reading from the scroll in Isaiah 61 at the beginning of his ministry. And in Luke 4.21, Jesus reads the words that I just read and then says, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. In the Beatitudes, we see Old Testament prophecies and promises now being fulfilled in Jesus' coming and bringing the kingdom of God near and calling people to repent and to follow him. Continuing on with the third beatitude, we see that the humble or the meek are people who do not consider their needs first or depend on themselves, but rather completely on God. This is another Old Testament promise coming to fulfillment with Jesus, and it came from our scripture reading this morning. Psalm 37, we see this language of how the humble trusting in God for provision and justice, and they're not trying to take matters into their own hands. And in verse 11 of Psalm 37, it it says, 
the humble will inherit the land. And then we have hungering and thirsting for righteousness. As those who are poor in spirit, mourning, and humble, we can't help but to hunger and thirst for righteousness outside of ourselves. Or empty. We got nothing. And in Psalm 107, verses 5 to 9, speak of this. It says, They were hungry and thirsty. Their spirits failed within them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He rescued them from their distress. He led them by the right path to go to a city where they could live. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love and his wondrous works for all humanity. For he has satisfied the thirsty and filled the hungry with good things. Again, another Old Testament promise being fulfilled in Jesus and his Beatitudes. And let's not forget, Jesus is describing his disciples to themselves, showing them the reality of who they are. And these first four Beatitudes cut straight to the heart and identify these characteristics within all of us. We're empty, we're hosed, we got nothing, and we're hungering for something. But it's only in and at this place that God awakens our hearts, that he takes out our heart of stone and gives us this heart of flesh. When we see our total an utter need for him because on our own, we're simply dead in sin, as Paul says. And it is at this place that God graciously offers us what we could never attain on our own, his forgiveness, his grace, his kingdom. Someone in this poverty of spirit in this state of mourning with no hope within themselves, who is humble and is thirsting for righteousness, totally dependent on God, the one who can say the kingdom of heaven, theirs. The one who can say they will be comforted. The one who can say they will inherit the earth. And the one who can say they will be filled. Because Jesus has come to fulfill all the wonderful promises of God. So, are you poor in spirit apart from Christ? Are you completely empty without him? Or is Jesus just an add-on to your life, just dragging Jesus along? Do you mourn over your own brokenness and sinfulness and the brokenness and sinfulness of the world that we live in? Do you humbly lay aside your desires, your wants, your goals, all these things, trusting God to be the one who will provide for you? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness that only God can provide? Or have you duped yourself into thinking that your own righteousness, my own goodness, is sufficient? It'll do. The Beatitudes are a mirror for us to look at ourselves and see where God would have us continue growing in our love and in our dependence on him. And for these last four Beatitudes, we'll see that they focus more on how these blessed people relate to others. These last four state the blessed people are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted because of righteousness. These are how the blessed people of God's kingdom will interact with the world around them. And there are many similarities and connections to the previous four Beatitudes because 
Jesus is teaching us that we don't get to just pick and choose which of these characteristics we want to have. This is a holistic and complete picture of one of Jesus' disciples. They will be merciful towards others because they have received mercy and their repentance and coming to faith in Christ. They will not withhold from others what God has graciously given to them. Jesus talks about this later in his model prayer. Lord, forgive us as we forgive others, right? Then he says again, right after the prayer, if you do not forgive others, I don't forgive you because you're not getting it. The merciful will give mercy and they will receive mercy. They will be pure in heart with no deceitfulness or ulterior motives found within them because Jesus has truly given them new hearts. They will be peacemakers because of the peace that was made for them by God himself. They will not be known for getting their way or fighting for their own sake, but just as they are humble and meek, they will strive for peace with all people, enemies included. And the ironic last beatitude is that these peacemakers, these merciful and humble people, will be persecuted because of their righteousness, because of their their good deeds, which seems like nonsense, because who would persecute a peacemaker? And this is what Jesus expounds on in verses 11 and 12, saying that because of him, all these different forms of persecution will happen to his disciples and to us today as it happened with God's prophets in the Old Testament. No one really ever liked God's prophets in the Old Testament, and it's not going to change much for us today. And even more so, it will be how they treat Jesus, ultimately killing the peacemaker who came to restore peace between God and man. And they killed him. So as one of his followers, persecution should not surprise us. But as Jesus says, we should rejoice and be glad because our reward in heaven, in his kingdom, is great. So the blessed ones are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted because they will be shown mercy. They're blessed because they will see God. They're blessed because they will be called sons of God. Children of God will be their name. And as that final reminder, they'll be blessed because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The kingdom of heaven is ours for us who believe. And this begs the question, again, are we characterized as merciful in all areas of our lives? Are we merciful with our family, with our friends? Are we merciful at work with customers or coworkers? Are we merciful in competition when we play board games? Maybe there's a little wiggle room there. Are you pure in heart? Or do you act deceitfully in certain areas of your life? In your marriage? Your kids? At your job? Do you, do you try and manipulate people to get what you want? That's not pure in heart. That's not who a follower of Christ is. 
Are you a peacemaker? Or are you the one causing the division and the lack of reconciliation? And are you persecuted because of righteousness? Or do you cave in your convictions when the pressure to do the right thing confronts you? I think we can all learn a lesson from our brothers and sisters around the world who live in persecuted countries. So here we have all eight Beatitudes. And they could easily be eight separate sermons. I was up very late last night and I had to stop at one point because I was like, I will be up all night long and I still won't be done. But today we see the big picture of what Jesus wanted to reveal. The, the broad strokes of what Jesus was teaching his disciples. The characteristics of God's people and the promised blessings for those who repent and follow him. This was Jesus' teaching to his disciples and the crowds that were listening in on what the truly blessed and happy life is because of the astounding promises that are in store. This is the life that Jesus called his disciples to and to us as well. May these beatitudes be a constant reminder for us. May they be like looking in a mirror. Where is Jesus calling you to remember who you are in him and where you need to grow in him? I'd like to invite the worship team to come back up uh, so we can respond to God's word this morning. And as they're making their way up, I want to read you a little bit of poetry here. Empty in spirit and soul, without hope and having no control. You call us blessed. Ones who have found and followed you. Ones who have repented and trust you make all things new. That though we mourn and hunger and thirst, you promise the last shall be first. A kingdom eternal, greater than this world is waiting for us here and now to one day be unfurled. So we fix our eyes on you, knowing you will teach us what is good, right, and true. As mercy we have received, so mercy we will give because we have believed. The blessed life for the ones who lose their life, because in doing so we save it and now have eternal life. Teach us, O oh Lord, to follow your ways. Remind us of who we are for the rest of our days. Let's stand together. Let this be a time to respond to what God is doing in your heart. If you need prayer, I'll be right up front here. I'd love to pray with you. And if you just need to spend some time, quiet time to yourself, reflecting on what God is doing and teaching you, please, please, please do so. And I encourage you also to, to respond in song, to respond in rejoicing in the amazing things God has done for us in this blessed life that he has given us. Let's pray. Father, your word surprises us at every turn. Never would we ever define the truly blessed as the poor in spirit, 
the mourning, the humble, those who are hungry and thirsty for something outside of themselves, their own righteousness, the merciful and the peacemakers, the persecuted. Father, you tell us these are the blessed ones, and you tell us why. It's because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. For us here, Lord, you, you're reminding us of where we were at, where we are, and what you have in store. God, I pray that these Beatitudes don't leave our hearts and our minds. That you remind us of the words you first taught your disciples and that you were teaching us today. Lord, may these, these words reveal things to us about how you have been so gracious and so merciful to us. And I pray that they're an encouragement to us, that their future promises, both now and to come, strengthen us. They make our faith unshakable. And God, I pray that you teach us how we live this life now. That we are, are merciful, that we're pure in heart, that we're peacemakers. And that for some weird reason, the world doesn't like those things and we'll be persecuted. So I pray that you are guiding us, that we are walking in the power of your spirit, that you are just conforming us more and more into the image of your Son. I pray this all in your name. Amen.